1: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: Ch-ch-chumba.
1: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna. and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of everything, everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member,
0: consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: They are wild and absolutely prepared to die. It has
1: been one calamity after another. The crops failed. First, the delicate grapevines collapsed. Struck by blight after blight, There will be no wine this season. Then an early frost took the wheat. You've had to dig deeper into the earth to bring up gold and silver, and even then, you have found less and less stores than the years before. And then, the fresh streams went foul, and only the strongest survived. You will be unable to pay your taxes when the Romans come calling, and this will mean you will have to part with your gold or your children, because the Romans will not leave until they are paid. Your warbands are far south fighting in Roman wars. Their reinforcements and plunder will take months to arrive, and you need their help now. Your tribe cries out to Zalmoxis. They cry out for help and justice. Why has your God forsaken you? Why has he left you to struggle and die? You must send a messenger. You must make your God see reason, because this desperate struggle has gone on too long. It has made you weak in the eyes of your enemies, in the eyes of the other tribes and then you will all be vulnerable. Your priests suggest the perfect day. The sun will be high and the weather dry. Your people are made ready. You ask for volunteers and three men step forward. Two are old enough to have served in many campaigns, but one is not yet old enough to grow a beard. You point to the youngest one, a boy really. You'll try him first, you pray he will do. The spears are set up, three lances fixed in the ground. The boy holds his head high. He knows what will come next, but he is prepared to meet Zalmoxis. He is prepared for the next world. It is a matter of seconds. Three men hoist him into the sky and then he is falling, limbs moving as he arcs down to land back first onto the three lance points. He does not cry out when they pierce his back, one emerging from his chest. A perfect death. You can already see the light leaving his eyes and you step forward quickly reaching up to bring his ear down to you. Blood runs down from the boy's open mouth as you whisper in his ear the message he is to carry to the god. You must meet Zomboxis. You must go to tell him of our desperate need. Do not fail us. The boy breathes out, pink blood bubbling at the corners of his lips. Your words are the last thing he hears, and then he's gone, gone to carry his message to the god. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm
0: Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl.
1: Who was Spartacus, really? It's not an easy question to answer. Despite all that's been written about him in the ancient sources, Spartacus is kind of an opaque character. He's the sort of historical figure that has lived so long in our collective memory because you can project onto him whatever cultural values you hold most dear. Spartacus, the symbol, looms large in literature, art, and political movements. And even ballet, Jenny. There's a ballet about Spartacus.
0: I did not know that, but I really want to see it.
1: (laughs) Me too. But we're not interested in Spartacus the symbol. We're interested in Spartacus the man.
0: The ancient sources give us information about what Spartacus did, the actions he took, but we know very little about his personal story or intentions. They are very light on the internal monologue with Spartacus. However, we do get some clues, and one of those was that Spartacus was a Thracian. Maybe. Even this is up for debate. Modern historians can't say for sure whether, when the ancient sources call him Thracian, they mean Spartacus was from Thrace or whether he just fought as a Thracian in the arena because Thracian was also a specific category of gladiator and gladiators of all backgrounds could and did fight in that style. But We at Ancient History Fangirl are going to take a stand. Spartacus really was a Thracian. There are compelling reasons to believe this, which we'll get into, but not in this episode. It's kind of a thing we're going to get into later. But for now, we're just going to ask you to go out on this limb with us and accept that to know Spartacus, you have to know the Thracians.
1: And once you peel back that curtain, you find it deep, deep rabbit hole full of its own mysteries. It's its own wonderland. These were a people of legends, the people of Orpheus, Spartacus, descendants of the god of war Ares, or the sorceress goddess Thraci. Mercenaries of the ancient world, wild, free, and untamable. And this is their story. Not enough is known about the Thracians. We can put together fragments of their culture through the writings of contemporary Greek and Roman authors and through their burial practices. But like the Gauls, the Thracians were mainly a people of oral traditions. And this makes it complicated when we try to tell their story centuries later, because understanding who these people were means looking at their story through the eyes of the people who sought to oppress, enslave, and assimilate them. It means trying to scratch out their history through tantalizing glimpses of their culture through mythology, burial mounds, and the accounts of Roman and Greek historians. And as we've said many times, Roman and Greek historians and authors and mythographers always had an axe to grind. So it's hard to paint a true and accurate picture using these sources. But unfortunately, this is what we have to work with, so we're going to try.
0: I mean, where have I heard this before, Jen?
1: I mean, this feels like the Gauls all over again, but what do I know?
0: (laughs) So join us as we travel back in time, as we wander the mountains of Bulgaria, the plains of southeastern Europe, travel to the Black Sea, northern Greece, and the Danube as we breathe life into the Thracian people again. First, it's important to understand that the Thracians weren't one people making up one culture and one country. Just like when we talked about the Gauls, the Thracians were made up of different tribes. They all had their own cultures, beliefs, and tribal loyalties. But they all kind of had a similar cultural lexicon, is what I'm assuming, like the Gauls and Celts did. Like, they shared certain cultural similarities, but they were not all one people. They didn't necessarily all follow the exact same customs or worship the same gods.
1: No, and I think most importantly, a lot of them didn't like each other.
0: This is one of the big things is that they did not all get along, and many of them had tribal feuds that stretched back generations. They didn't consider themselves to be one people. The term Thracian comes from Greek and Roman writers who considered the area that covered the Balkan mountains in the north to the Aegean Sea in the south and the Black Sea in the east to be part of Thrace. However, this area was home to over 200 different tribes, 200 different people who were not just one homogenous group.
1: Yeah. And that number 200 comes from a few different places. I've also seen 90. It really depends on the time you're talking about. It's up to 200 different tribes. I don't know who wrote this episode. It was me. But they worded that a little confusingly. Spoiler, it was Jen. (laughs) It was definitely me. So this episode is going to focus on the mythology and stories the ancient Greeks and Romans wrote down to describe these tribes. We're mainly going to be looking at their beliefs, their gods and goddesses, and how they were similar or different to their Roman and Greek counterparts, and why these stories give us a picture of who the Thracians were. Our next episode will focus on the archeology span and day-to-day life of the Thracians. But in order to understand the day-to-day life of the Thracians, we have to delve into what they believed. Because their beliefs, their oral history and traditions were what made them so extraordinary and so very different from their Greek and Roman neighbors in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high carpathian mountains of course it was dangerous but uh, danger was his friend subscribe to history's secret heroes wherever you get your podcasts hello it's takui here and i'm gabby and we are the hosts of history of everything a podcast
0: which you can probably guess by the name is well i mean it's about everything do you want
1: to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear
0: tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: So, Jenny, who were the Thracians?
0: First, let's start with that name. Thracians. The tribes that made up the area the Romans and Greeks called Thrace certainly didn't see themselves as Thracians. They saw themselves as Medi, or Bessi, or Getae, or any of the other 200 different tribes that made up the region. It was their colonizing neighbors who saw the people of these different tribes as Thracians. The word Thracian is Greek in origin, and it likely comes from Thrax, who was the son of Ares, the Greek god of war. And there was a good reason that they associated the two. The Thracians were fierce, physically large men and women, highly skilled fighters, and horse people who were renowned for their prowess at war. They were also the ancient world's elite mercenaries, employed in every major army and engagement in the ancient world, including Alexander the Great's Persian campaign. They saw fighting and combat as a calling. Their warriors were even said to have the heart of Ares, or the heart of war. So, it makes a lot of sense that according to Greek mythology, they were descended from the god of war himself, Ares. And that's probably where their name comes from. Thrace, or Thrax, was said to be the son of Ares and the founder of Thrace. His golden shield was said to be kept at his temple in Bistonia in Thrace. His legacy, his mythical shield, was, according to the Greeks, a big part of the Thracian warrior culture.
1: But was it... What's it really? The Romans and Greeks certainly believed this story because it explained their fierce neighbors and why they were so gifted to combat. I mean, clearly it must be because the god of war favors them. Can't be that they're quite skilled and that their culture values this over other things.
0: No, it's because they're descended from Thrax, who is the son of Ares, and they have the heart of war. That's why.
1: But here's the thing. The Thracians had their own gods of war and these gods didn't correlate to Ares or Thrax. There's also another mythological goddess who is associated with the founding of Thrace and her name is Thraiki. She was a goddess and a sorceress because why be one when you could be both?
0: That's always my question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why not be both? She was the daughter of Oceanus and Parthenope and the sister of Europa.
0: Can we remind people of who those people are? I can.
1: So Oceanus was the titan god of the ocean.
0: Not Neptune, different god of
1: the ocean. He's like daddy god of the ocean who was then overthrown when the Olympian Neptune became the god of the ocean. Parthenope, I could not even find a Wikipedia or any sort of like information about her. I looked back in my Ovid and in my Edith Hamilton, so I'm not sure who she was. I think she was a muse or she might have been a tightness.
0: I asked Myths Baby and she didn't know.
1: Yeah, we asked Liv from Miss Baby and she didn't know.
0: If Myths Baby doesn't know who this is, then I guess she doesn't exist. I don't know. If
1: between me and Myths, maybe we can't find it. I don't know what to tell you. But we do know who Europa was. Europa was a girl who Zeus took fancy to, who he turned into a bull because, well, it's a long story. She like eventually rode across Europe in the sky and I believe landed on Crete. But there's more to the story.
0: Definitely got raped by Zeus. That was probably part of it. But anyway,
1: much like her mother, little is known about Thraci. Except that she was a goddess and a sorceress and maybe even a poisoner. Oh, really? Yes. This is the tantalizing little glimpses I got where she was this wild goddess and sorceress and witch and poisoner. I don't know if she's like someone like Circe or not, but she was this Thracian goddess who was very feared by outsiders because she got up to wild things. She
0: Sounds like a badass bitch who I would like to have a cocktail with.
1: I don't want to have a cocktail with her if she's making them, but if I'm making them, I'm down.
0: We'll just have to get to know her. She's very nice once you get to know her.
1: Oh yeah, I'm sure she's lovely, but you know, I mix my own drinks to start.
0: Jen mixes her own drinks,
1: and it always goes really well. It does not. Guys, Yule. I'm just going to remind you, I made all the drinks for Yule. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. I think three <laughs> Reiki would get very drunk and be like, this is not a good scene.
0: She'd be like, this is some kind of a poisoner here. I cannot trust this person.
1: Anyway, I want to get back to why I included Thraiki. So I wanted her in this episode because the idea that she was a sorceress is very important in how the Greeks and Romans viewed Thracian women. Thracian women, according to the stereotype, were wild. Unmarried women had freedoms that Greek and Roman women didn't have they had some agency over who they chose to have sex with. They rode horses, and depending on their tribe, they would have had some martial training and might wear leggings like their Scythian neighbors. They had sleeves of tattoos, which were bestowed only on the highest ranking women, And were seen as a mark of beauty. This was anathema to the Greeks and Romans who considered tattoos to be only for slaves or the lower classes, and many women were priestesses of Dionysus and other Thracian gods. They were foreign and strange and hypnotic, and as you're going to find out, a lot of these rites for different Thracian gods ended in orgies. So is it really that surprising that the ancient Greeks chose to associate a sorceress with them? They were the kind of women who Greeks and Romans believed could actually enslave men.
0: So that is where the name Thrace comes from. The Thracians were an Indo-European people who occupied the area between southern Russia, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Turkey. Archaeological evidence suggests that the Thracian tribes occupied this area since at least 1300 BC, maybe longer. They shared borders with Greece, Gaul, and the Scythians. You can see aspects of Greek culture, Scythian, and Gallic culture in their beliefs and practices, but make no mistake. The tribes that made up Thrace were their own people. According to Herodotus, quote, The Thracians are the biggest nation in the world, next to the Indians, and by Indians he means people from India. If they were under one ruler or united, they would, in my judgment, be invincible and the strongest nation on earth. Since, however, there is no way or means to bring this about, they are weak.
1: Herodotus, you're so salty here. Sad. The Thracians were many people who didn't get along with each other. This much was clear even to outsiders like Herodotus, and it was frequently exploited by invading armies like Alexander the Great and Darius I of Persia. That's fundamentally because the Thracians shared some overlapping beliefs, but also believed wildly different things. Depending on where the tribe was located, their beliefs might have more in common with people like the Scythians, Gauls, Parthians, the Goths, or others. According to Herodotus, the Thracians worshipped only a few gods. Quote, They worship no gods but Ares, Dionysus, and Artemis. Their princes, however, unlike the rest of their countrymen, worship Hermes above all gods and swear only by him, claiming him for their own ancestor. Now, we know this isn't exactly true. Herodotus is conflating all the Thracian gods with the Greek gods and trying to draw direct comparisons. And I can understand that. He's trying really hard to explain to his fellow countrymen and women who these people were. And he's using examples they'll know, examples from their own belief system and structure. And I don't think he's trying to minimize who the Thracian gods and goddesses were or how they worked. I think what he's trying to do is help people wrap their head around who these gods and goddesses were in relationship to their gods and goddesses so they could make some kind of correlation and sort of understand them better.
0: But the thing is, this doesn't really work when you look at the martial culture of the Thracians. Their gods and goddesses reflected their way of life, which was about honor, belief in the afterlife, war, and freedom. You can't swap one god for another, but we did try to break down what Herodotus might have meant when he compared the Thracian gods to their Greek equivalents. So, he said Ares, Dionysus, and Artemis. And we know that Thracians did worship Dionysus. That's actually true. And we're not going to retread this ground. If you want to know all about Dionysus, then go back and listen to Dionysus parts one and two, because we talk about Dionysus a lot. And then we have a whole episode with Myths Baby where we talk about him some more. So if you want to hear about Dionysus, go listen to those episodes. The Orphic cult of Dionysus also comes from Thrace, and we're also not going to discuss Orpheus or the Orphics here because we go over it in Dionysus' religion of revolution. So let's get to something else Herodotus mentioned that is not Dionysus. Specifically, the importance of Hermes, especially among the Thracian upper classes.
1: Hermes was the ancient Greek god with the wings on his sandals. You've seen him all over the place. He was the herald and emissary of the gods, said to be the protector and patron of travelers, thieves, merchants, orators, and heralds. Orators. I love the idea that like Cicero was like, dear Hermes, help me make a good speech. (laughs) Or I guess it'd be Mercury, but you know, I just love that idea. So Hermes is known for his swiftness of flight and was also believed to be the one who helped souls move from the living world to the afterlife. But the Thracians were an extremely warlike people. Why would Herodotus tell us that the one their elites put above all others wasn't a god of war, but Hermes, the messenger god? The reason may have to do with one particular Thracian tribe, the Getai, and what they believed the Getae, according to Herodotus, were, quote, the noblest as well as the most just of all the Thracian tribes. Pomponius Mela describes them as, quote, wild and absolutely prepared to die. And there might be a good reason for this. They believed in immortality through reincarnation. Well, sort of. Sort of. But I I love the idea that (laughs) Pomponius Mela is like, they're wild and absolutely prepared to die. Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) They are
0: absolutely fucking prepared to die, Jen. Pomponius Mela is covered in melted cheese at all times. Don't ask me where I got that, but he is, so you have to listen to him. (laughs) I don't know. Jen and I were rehearsing this the other night, and we were both a little punchy, and we got into how Pomponius Mela shows up at your house with pizza or something, and always the right quote, and somehow he's covered
1: in cheese. And pizza sauce. Do you remember pizza and ranch dressing?
0: No? Is
1: this a thing? From our days at college, yes, it was a big thing.
0: Oh, was it when you dipped the pizza roll in the ranch dressing? Because I definitely did that.
1: Or you could even just have regular pizza. It was really good. I haven't had that in so long.
0: So if you ever need a quote for your episode, call up Pomponius Mela. He will show up at your house with large pizza. A large
1: pizza pie, ranch dressing, and totally covered in cheese.
0: And he may or may not have the quote you need, but there'll definitely be cheese. I don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Uh, (laughs) We're trying to explain about this reincarnation shit, okay? Okay, hit me. I'm trying to, but listen, this is going to be a floppy hit. The reincarnation they believed in. Like, when I think of reincarnation today, what I think of is when you die and then you're born again as a whole new person on Earth. Yeah, that's
1: a much more Eastern view than what we're talking about here for the Thracians.
0: It's a little confusing as to what they believed. And sometimes I would be reading things or Jen would be telling me something and I would be like, wait, what's the difference between that and just dying and going to like an afterlife? And I, I'm i not really sure. And it's kind of fuzzy.
1: I'm not really sure that they were exactly sure. Or that there is something lost in translation. That's exactly exactly where I was going. A lot of the sources we're reading have been translated into English and some things in the ancient sources haven't been fully explained. So there might be stuff in Bulgarian or in Greek or in academic texts that I just don't have access to. So what we've got is what I have distilled from many sources translated into English, some more scholarly than others, that I think is what they're talking about.
0: So Herodotus has something to add to this conversation.
1: Of course he did. Was there some salt with it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Quote, they believe they are immortal forever living in the following sense. They think they do not die and that the ones who die join Zalmoxis, a divine being. I don't know. That that clears it right up, Herodotus. Thanks. I know. <laughs> Either you don't die or you do die, but then when you die, you're with Zalmoxis. I don't know what that means. I think there's something lost in translation here.
1: Zalmoxis is very much of the Getai tribe, too. Like, he doesn't translate necessarily to all the other tribes, so...
0: Yeah, we suspect that this sense of immortality we're getting here relates to a belief in the immortality of the soul. The Getae believed that you didn't really die because your soul was immortal unless it did, in which case you get to chill with Zalmoxis. And if you're a little confused,
1: you're not alone. I'm also confused. We saw this also when we looked at the Orpheics and the cult of Dionysus and their sort of belief in coming back 10 times, like a lot of that is extrapolated from piecemeal. So it's possible that you didn't die and you then came back in some way or you did die and you went to go to, you know, hang out with Zelmoxis in the afterlife, or that you died but your soul wasn't created or destroyed. So something that's pretty unusual in the ancient world, the
0: Getae worshipped one god, Zalmoxis, And that's not to say that they only believed in one god, that's just to say that they only worshipped one god. And that's kind of rare in the ancient world. Like, they weren't monotheists. But monotheists themselves were also pretty rare in the ancient world. Like most people believed in and worshipped many gods, unless they were like Jewish or I guess Zoroastrians at this time. I don't know a lot of other monotheists that I could think of.
1: Well, I guess the Orpheics as well. But what I got out of the Getai and this worship was they worshipped one god above all all others. As you said, they weren't saying that there were no other gods. They were just saying our god is better than your god above all the other gods.
0: Well, they only worshipped Salmoxis. Like, they didn't have other gods besides Salmoxis, right?
1: They accepted that there were other gods out there. They were aware that there were gods of things like thunder and the waves and stuff like that, but they were like okay, we're just going to talk to Zalmoxis about this and he's going to stop it.
0: Like if they did not like what was going on in the sky, they'd be like, can we talk to your manager? And that would be Zalmoxis. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) The god of like thunder and lightning would be like, excuse me? We'll get to how they felt about the god of thunder and lightning in a minute. So Zalmoxis was the god that Herodotus is equating with Hermes. At least that's our theory. And he was worshipped particularly by Thracian kings and princes. He was worshipped by the upper classes. And we're going to go ahead and share a long quote from Encyclopedia.com because that is the kind of podcast this is.
1: And also because I tried to rework this, and every time I did, I was like, you know what? I don't even know if I'm getting it right. Let's let Encyclopedia tell us.
0: Legit reason, okay. <laughs> quote, Herodotus refers to a story told by the Greeks in the Pontic colonies on the western shore of the Black Sea, according to which Zalmoxis was a getic slave of the Greek Pythagoras. Yeah, the guy who invented the triangle?
1: Math isn't my story strong suit. He didn't invent the triangle. He invented sort of the theory that allows you to find out the hypothesis. Hypothesis? Whatever it is. Hypotenuse? Hypothesis? He allowed you to find out the measurement of the triangle, and I could have looked up what the word is, but I didn't. He discovered the hippopotenuse, okay? <laughs> <laughs> It's day 7,000 of, of quarantine. I've had one glass of wine and my tolerance is gone.
0: I have been drinking the whole way through.
1: Tell me about the hippopotamus guy. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you about the hippopotamus. So
0: <laughs> after Zalmoxis was... What the fuck are we doing? I don't know. So Zalmoxis was a getic slave of the Greek Pythagoras who invented the hippopotamus. He's famous because of the triangle. After Zalmoxis was freed, he became wealthy And went back to his native country where he taught the northern Thracians the Greek way of life based on Pythagorean ideas about immortality, vegetarianism, I don't know, the three sides of the triangle, whatever, and so forth. To be
1: fair, I'm going to stop this quote right here because Pythagoras is super fascinating and he had his own cult and it's really, really cool and I will, I promise, get there one day. We are planning a whole season where we talk about weird religious stuff. And Pythagoras is on the list. I'm excited
0: already. All right. Zalmoxis went back to his homeland. He's teaching the good word about Pythagoras to his friends and family. And in his homeland, Zalmoxis had an Andryon built a room for the exclusive use of men, so a man cave, where he received the chiefs of the Getae and taught them that neither they nor their posterity would die. This concept of immortality refers in all probability to a paradise where warriors would enjoy eternal life and everlasting pleasure after death. While he imparted this teaching of the afterlife, Zalmoxis had an underground chamber constructed. So like an underground chamber, sort of like the horrible hole, like how did he get in there? Let's finish the
1: quote and then we can break it down.
0: Was it a rope ladder, like a pole that you slide down? Let's not get caught on
1: the axle here. We can do it in a minute.
0: (laughs) So he had this underground chamber constructed, no word on how he got into it or out of it. But when it was finished, he retired to it for three years during which the Thracians mourned his death. But in the fourth year, he reappeared showing that death is not irreversible. I have so many thoughts.
1: So first, Zalmoxis was a Thracian slave of Pythagoras. You know the hypotenuse guy. Hypotenuse triangles, something, something. Hypotenuse triangles, immortality cult that did crazy things, and Zalmoxis became a god eventually to the Getai. After Zalmoxis was freed from his slavery, he returned to his homeland. He had the money. He had the good word about immortality, and he taught the Getai how they could obtain it. He somehow won the admiration of a war warrior people by proving to them that there was an afterlife and that death was not the end. But how did he prove that there was life after death? He had a magic trick. He built a literal man cave that only men were allowed to enter. They came in. They had their little chats. They played their games where they flung wine at the walls. Presumably somebody cleaned it up. He wasn't Zamoxis. Jen had to clean it up. She's still enraged about it. Well, I'm not I'm not a guy, so I couldn't have gone in there. Sorry. Haha. Ha. Jen didn't clean up your wine cave, bitches. So while this was happening, underneath the man cave, there was another man cave tomb being built. There was a man cave under the man cave. Exactly. I'm going with this whole idea that zamoxis had some money and he was like, look. I need this to be a really nice place to retire to. When I'm done talking to all the princes and all the nobles, I want to be able to just relax for like four years, not see anybody, throw out my quarantine beard and my quarantine hair, drink all the good wine. Four years of
0: quarantine in the man cave under the man cave. Under the man cave. Top secret second man
1: cave. I think of it as this sort of man cave quarantine bunker.
0: So he was in there for four years or maybe three years, I guess, depending on the source. Or some sources say five. Three to five years.
1: And it might be that he died during this time. It might be that he didn't die during this time.
0: Well, I think that people thought he died, right? They definitely thought he died. So the official story is that Zalmoxis died under there and then popped back
1: up. Yeah. And then he was resurrected like a groundhog. Like Jesus. Exactly. And... So Moxis was like, hey, everyone, time to get your worship on. I have returned. Returned from the dead. I've returned from the dead to tell you that I was right. Everyone else is wrong. Worship me. You can send people to me and then I'll be able to make sure everything happens. That's good for you. So apparently this disappearing for four or five or three years was enough to make the Getty believe in his divinity and decide that Zamoxis was their guy. The Getai worships Amoxis as their one true god above all others and followed his teachings above all else. Again, here is another quote from Herodotus.
0: Herodotus has showed up at our door with plenty of pizza and plenty of melted cheese, and he's going to give us the straight dope.
1: Herodotus doesn't have the pizza and the melted cheese. That's only Pomponius Mella. Herodotus rocks up with the beautiful fruit platter. He's got the watermelon. He's got fresh strawberries. He's got the feta. He's got the olives. Maybe a little hummus and pita. He's all about the Mediterranean diet. Really keto. If we, if we really looked into the hell of it.
0: Herodotus was so keto, okay? He was following the keto diet, he had really defined abs.
1: Oh my God, he had history abs. <laughs> but they were not covered in cheese because Herodotus doesn't do cheese. Well, Herodotus does his feta, but only every once in a while. And only very small portions to bring out the taste of other things. Never on pizza. Not on pizza.
0: No. I don't know what the keto diet is. I don't know if it has cheese or not. I don't either. We know nothing.
1: (laughs) Moving on. Quote. So this is Herodotus's quote. Quote. Their belief, their, meaning the Getae's belief in their immortality is as follows. They believe that they do not die, but that one who perishes goes to the deity Zomoxis. Once every five years, they choose one of their people by lot and send him as a messenger to Zomoxis with instructions to report their needs, and this is how they send him. Three lances are held by designated men. Others seize the messenger to Zalmoxis by his hands and feet and swing and toss him up onto the spear points. If he is killed by the toss, they believe that the god regards them with favor. If he is not killed, they blame the messenger himself, considering him a bad man, and send another messenger in place of him. It is while the man still lives that they give him the message furthermore, when there's thunder and lightning, these Thracians shoot arrows skyward as a threat to the god, believing in no other god but their own. This is very metal, Jen. This is so hardcore. One of the biggest things that we've seen continuously as we delve into the Thracians is that they believed in rebirth after death or some form of rebirth after death. Or some kind of immortality. Yeah, some kind of immortality. But the Getai are the only tribe who are singled out for the Their belief in dispatching a messenger to their god via ritual sacrifice to discuss their needs. And that's not to say that there's no other religions that do this. This
0: is just the only one we've heard of.
1: And that's not to say other Thracians or other cults didn't do this within Thrace. We will talk about another cult that did have a form of human sacrifice, but this particular type of human sacrifice to converse with your god seems very, very much typical only to the Getai that I saw amongst the Thracian tribes. Remember, at any point in time, there were up to 200 tribes. So that's a lot. <laughs> it's one, Jen. There's one me. So the link between Hermes, the Greek messenger god, and Salmoxis isn't an exact one. But I suspect it is this ritual sacrifice, the sending of a messenger that links Salmoxis to Hermes. I could be wrong.
0: But you're not. It's our podcast, so (laughs) we decide reality here. It's our podcast. I wonder, because Jen put it in this paragraph for me to read, so that is why I wonder, if that is not where the term don't kill the messenger comes from. Coincidence?
1: I think not. I mean, you could imagine someone watching that being like, don't, oh, okay, I guess you're going to kill him.
0: The Getae are also the only tribe that we've ever come across who only worshipped one god and threatened other gods, like we've said before. The idea that they shot arrows into the sky to tell the god of thunder, whose name was, Zbe- this is a mouthful, Zebel Theodos.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny, but it just is. <laughs> Guys, I also get to decide who reads what and do a pronunciation guide. I did not do a pronunciation guide. We
0: haven't done pronunciation guides in a long time. Like, I think we
1: stopped doing that in season two. We haven't really had to because we've gotten much better with the pronunciations, we think, or we're just lying to ourselves. We're not sure.
0: What happened is we got a lot more confident about saying it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, Zibel it's my podcast, that's how you pronounce it, <laughs> he was the Thracian god of thunder, and the Greeks identified him with Zeus. And the idea that they shot arrows at Zibel Theardos' giant ass in the sky just tells us that they were not afraid of him and to go away! Go
1: away! Sabelle Theodos, go away. They were like, listen, we know you're a god up there. We know you got like thunder and lightning and you could mess stuff up for us. But we just want you to go away. And if you don't get it, we got more arrows. We got more arrows for your ass. <laughs> it's just like, you can't imagine the ancient Greeks or Romans like shooting arrows at Jupiter or Zeus and being like, go home, Zeus, you're drunk. Like, you just don't say it. <laughs> go home, you're drunk, Sibel Theodos. You're clearly drunk. Go
0: home and sleep it <laughs> off. <laughs> you know what Pomponius Mela would say? They are wild
1: and absolutely prepared to die. They are. Can you imagine if you believed that there is this god that could hurt you and you were just like, go home, you're drunk, god." <laughs> That is a lot.
0: <laughs> it's a lot. The Getae worshipped only one god, but they also accepted that there were other gods out there, as evidenced by the arrow shooting, because if they didn't believe in Zabel Theodos, who were they shooting at? I don't know. Giant mystery. They believed that other gods existed and could do all kinds of harm. They just didn't worship them. They didn't give even a single solitary fuck. That made them outliers with some very unique beliefs, although some similarities to other Thracian tribes as well. And remember, there are 200 Thracian tribes and only one gen.
1: Contrary to popular belief. They won't let them clone me because they're like, one of you is a lot. Two of you is catastrophic.
0: I can't. It's like one war elephant. I can't deal with two.
1: You would need to send the Thracians to deal with two gen war elephants.
0: I'd have to send the Thracians to deal with your ass. (laughs) My contingent of Thracian mercenaries. (laughs) So if the Getae were the outliers, the Thracian tribe that didn't quite fit with the others, they were the wild children among the wild children. What were the rest of the Thracian tribes like? To understand that, we have to return to our good old friend on the keto diet, Herodotus. God,
1: he's gone gluten-free and he just needs everyone to know it.
0: (laughs) Herodotus tells us some fascinating tales about some of the other Thracian tribes, including the Trazi, who, quote, In all else, they conform to the customs of other Thracians except at the times of birth and death. When a child is born, the kinsmen sit around it and lament all the ills that it must endure from its birth onward, recounting all the sorrows of men. The dead, however, they bury with celebration and gladness, asserting that he is rid of so many ills and has achieved a state of complete blessedness.
1: This insight into the Trousy culture is, to say the least, eye-opening. Let's break this down. Let's extrapolate a few things here. Number one, Thracian life is hard (laughs) and it's full of sorrow. And lamenting a baby's birth makes a lot of sense because now the child is just in this world and it's just one long slog to the grave. Life is hard and then you die. Yeah, and also given how martial the people were and how often they were hired out as brutal mercenaries, this makes a lot of sense.
0: And how often they were sold into slavery.
1: Yeah, so according to our good friend Pomponius Mela, Wait, hold up. There's a knock at the door. (laughs) Ding dong. Who is it, Jen? Pomponis Naila. I got the pizza. I got the ranch dressing. I got the cheese. Did you order
0: a pizza? Did you order ranch dressing?
1: Did you order a (laughs) quote to go in your episode? (laughs) I guess we could also tell you who he was besides like being the ancient world sort of guy who pops up with pizza and ranch dressing. He was a Roman geographer who lived in the first century BC. I kind of trust him because he was a geographer. So it probably meant he had to travel a bit. So he probably had some experience with other cultures, which is nice.
0: Pomponius Mela, just popping up whenever you need him.
1: Yeah. So, apparently, there were three reasons Thracians didn't fear death, according to Pomponius, the pizza deliverer, Mela. Oh, now I'm thinking about him being in a porn. <laughs> well, he's covered in melted cheese, head to toe,
0: and nothing else. Oh, no! no <laughs> it's been in no, a hammock. No, it's no, entirely no, made no, out of mozzarella. No, no. It's
1: glorious. Oh, he's got a cheese speedo. <laughs> we're dishonoring <laughs> dishonoring the memory of Pomponius Mela. We're really sorry, Pomponius. You have done really good work, and we appreciate you arriving with pizza, rent, dressing, and quotes when we need them. Thank you,
0: Pomponius Mela. We acknowledge that you are a very serious person.
1: Here's this very serious quote, which is really, it's really good. It helped me shape this episode. Quote! (laughs) Some individuals think that the souls of the dead will return. Others think that if they do not return, souls still are not obliterated but go to a happier place. Still others think that souls do perish absolutely, but that dying is better than living. Therefore, childbirth is mourned among certain Thracians, and newborns are wept over, funerals, in contrast, are festive and are celebrated.
0: I mean, what I like about this is that he's actually clearing up a little bit, or at least adding to our conversation earlier about what Thracians actually believed, because he's basically saying that there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that have to do with maybe the soul returning, or maybe the soul not dying after death, or maybe they do die. I don't know, but he's kind of giving it a little bit more nuance here, which I like.
1: Yeah, and I like that he's saying different Thracians. Thracian tribes believe different things. Like he's one of the people who's saying they are not a monolith. We think of them as one place, one people, but they are not.
0: Right, and these are really artificial boundaries that the Greeks and Romans are setting. But they probably, a lot of these tribes probably did share certain cultural signifiers, but that didn't mean that they were all a united people.
1: So the celebration of the dead displays the faith that the Thracians had in the afterlife. Just like the cult of Orpheus, the Trousy believed that the next life would be better than this one. I mean, it had to. To be. The bar is low, according to the Trousy. For a culture that was all about how hard life was, the belief that the next life or an afterlife would be filled with happiness, and that death was a thing to be celebrated, is very different from other ancient cultures. Herodotus isn't talking about a mourning period. What he's talking about here is what we would think of in modern day as a celebration of life. Earlier, Herodotus mentioned four gods that the Thracians worshipped. Ares, Dionysus, Hermes, and Artemis. But the Thracians actually had their own gods, which reflected their people and culture. Some of the Thracian gods include...
0: Sebasios, or the cult of the Thracian horsemen. So the Thracian horseman Sebasios or Heros Carabasmos was worshipped from Thrace to Scythia to Asia Minor. He was an underworld deity largely found on funeral statues or inside burial mounds, and he's depicted as a man on horseback slaying an animal. The Thracian tribes were known to be expert horsemen and famous for breaking wild horses, so this god was especially important to them. It makes total sense that they would have a horse god.
1: Zabell Theodos was the Thracian god of thunder and lightning, who the Getae were just like, go home, you're drunk, and fired their arrows at him. He
0: couldn't do his thunder and lightning thing in Getae territory without being just like ridiculously
1: harassed and trolled. They trolled him! They were such trolls, the Getae. I know. So shrines to the thunder god were found around the modern-day Bulgarian town of Selo, which was an area where the Detelits tribe once lived.
0: That's a Thracian tribe, but Jen doesn't tell us anything about that tribe in this episode. 200 tribes,
1: I'm just letting you know.
0: They don't appear anywhere else in this episode, we're just telling you. We're just telling you! Kotis was a goddess of war whose name meant war slaughter. I love this.
1: I knew you'd love that. I put that in just for you.
0: She was worshipped with lots of revelry and midnight orgies because she was a badass. Ancient Greek sources called her priest Baptise. Sound familiar? Baptise is the root for the word baptism. And they were called Baptise because the purification rites involved in her worship required suppliants to wash or bathe. This makes total sense because please, for the love of COTIS, have a bath before the midnight orgy. Do not show up at the orgy stinky. Take a bath. Exactly. I don't care if you had one in the morning, you haven't one in the evening, too. That's right. Wash your junk with a special care.
1: Someone is going to be around that junk. Make it a pleasant experience.
0: Thank you, Jen. I agree. <laughs> orgy etiquette here.
1: Orgy etiquette 101. <laughs>
0: That's right. Kotis will teach you about orgy etiquette 101, or she might kill you on the battlefield, depending on the situation. So she's a uniquely Thracian goddess. She's a goddess of war. She's worshipped with orgies and revelry. And for a warrior people like the Thracians, this celebration ties war and sex together. Sex and death in that order. Strabo describes these orgies, quoting from Aeschylus, who was an ancient Greek tragedian. He describes, quote, mountain-ranging instruments like bombices, which was a stringed instrument, and, quote, the toilsome work of the turner's chisel, filled full the fingered melody, the call that brings the frenzy. Also played were the bronze-bound cotile, which was a symbol or castanet, and again, stringed instruments raised their shrill cry and frightful mimickers from some place unseen bellow like bulls and the semblance of drums as of subterranean thunder rolls along, a terrifying sound. Quote, For these rites resemble the Phrygian rites, and it is at least not unlikely that just as the Phrygians themselves were colonists from Thrace, so also their sacred rites were borrowed from there. Also, when they identify Dionysus, they hint at the homogeneity of their sacred rites.
1: So I wanted to include this quote because it is so intense and it really shows us this overlap of rituals you can see the bellowing like bulls and the drums and that makes you think of the sort of stuff we talked about in dionysus he comes with the bull roars yes but you also have this shrill instrument the cymbals, the castanets you've got the sound of thunder rolling underground like thousands of galloping horses on a
0: battlefield
1: Exactly. I think what this was supposed to be doing here was giving you this intense feeling of being on a battlefield, of everything washing over you. And you get this feeling of this madness of battle and also the sex and death because Dionysus is definitely involved. It's like an orgy on a battlefield. It's an orgy on a battlefield. Exactly. And we know that there's evidence that the Thracians use some type of drugs in some of their rituals. I didn't know what types, so I didn't want to to like, go down that rabbit hole. But it is true that they did use some mind altering things, including wine, potentially cannabis. I don't know what else. So you can just imagine these rites as these wild, chaotic, mimicking the frenzy of battle in this building to like a massive crescendo that is going to be an orgy in the woods. Sign me up. I want to go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I can't 100% say that's exactly what it would have been like. We have these details from Strabo, which we're sort of trying to extrapolate, and he himself is trying to understand another culture. We don't know how much of it he's actually witnessed himself or someone else has told him.
0: Did Strabo get an invite to the battlefield orgy or what?
1: I don't know. It's hard to tell. Like, we know that we're going to talk about Plato in another ritual later on, and we know he went to it. But we don't know that Strabo went to this one. If he did, I bet he had a real good time.
0: If he didn't, he's missing out. But I'm going to have to move us on to another god. Okay, let's move on.
1: And that god is Plastorus. He was a Thracian god of war. His priests were often high-ranking nobles and warriors. Some Thracian tribes, particularly the Dacians, believed in sacrificing prisoners of war to him. And you know what, Jenny? He was also worshipped by the Gauls.
0: So when you told me this, it set off alarm bells in my head.
1: Good alarm bells, right? Like connection alarm bells.
0: Connections. Connection alarm bells. When I was researching the Gauls episode, Everything Belongs to the Brave, I came I came across this archaeological site somewhere in France. The site is called clemont sur ancre This was a vast, elaborate display of dead bodies on an ancient Gallic battlefield. We talk about this, as I said, in the Gallic episode. It was a pre-Roman Gallic site that dated from 260 BC. And the way it was described, and I might be describing it a little wrong because I've had a few glasses of wine at this point. I did that episode a while ago. But what I'm remembering here, what sticks in my mind is that it was like this big platform on which hundreds of bodies were displayed, kind of propped up on racks, all wearing their armor and with their shields and weapons all on them, all like kind of just propped up there, like standing in rows, like in a phalanx or something. Although obviously the Gauls didn't have phalanxes. Well, maybe it was a Peltest, which would
1: have been the Thracian formation.
0: Maybe. I mean, I feel like the Gauls weren't quite that organized, but it was like some kind of, you know, battlefield arrangement of like rows of men, as if they were still on the battlefield, but they were dead. At some point in the site's history it had been raised and all the bodies had been buried in trenches around the site. But it was believed that they had been stood up on this platform with all these racks and rows for maybe like a few hundred years before because of the weathering on the bones and on the weapons that they carried. And one interpretation of this site, although it's difficult to interpret something like this, one interpretation of this site was that it was a battlefield monument dedicated to a god like some kind of a war god. And the thought was that either the dead were people who fell in battle, or they were sacrifices of war prisoners. And if the Gauls also worship Plastoros, and if Part of his worship was sacrificing prisoners to him. Maybe these were sacrifices to Plastoros.
1: I don't know. I could see the possibility there. It's a totally interesting thought. And it was one of those things where when I came across it, I had the same exact thought. I was like, do you remember that Gallic place where all the bodies were? Yeah. And I was like, yes, I do. When you're learning about ancient cultures, and this is, I don't know, other people might be more advanced than I am, but this is one of the things that I remember from school and everything else. You tend to think of them in silos. And you think like, this is what these people believe, and this is what that people believe. And what the podcast has really taught me is there was such a huge cultural exchange.
0: The thing about the Thracians is that their territory came up against all these other territories. Like you can pick out things about Thracians that you see in Gothic culture, that you see in Gallic culture and Celtic culture, that you see in Scythian culture and see in Greek and Roman culture.
1: And it's because they were up against all their neighbors and they had these incredible resources. They had real wealth. They had fertile fields. They had gold. They had silver. So they were always fighting to keep their land from being taken away by people, sometimes their own people and sometimes, you know, their outside neighbors like the Goths or the Gauls or the Scythians or the Romans and the Greeks.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about one of my favorite Thracian deities. Bendis. Bendis was the Thracian goddess of the moon and the hunt, and she is the one that the Greeks associated with Artemis, the virgin goddess of the moon and the hunt. So that's probably why Herodotus said that the Thracians worshipped Artemis. But Bendis is not Artemis. Bendis is Bendis. Bendis
1: is not Artemis.
0: If you take one fact away from this episode, just remember, guys, Bendis is Bendis. The Greeks also tried to explain Bendis as a cross between Hecate, the goddess of magic, Selene, the goddess of the moon, and Persephone, the goddess of spring and queen of the underworld. I love that about Persephone, goddess of spring,
1: queen of the underworld.
0: Yeah, but Bendis is not any of those goddesses. No! (laughs) Bendis is Bendis. I really am hardcore about that, okay? (laughs) Bendis was depicted as wearing a short Cheaton with an Asiatic-sleeved shrug undergarment, an animal skin because she was a huntress, a mantler cloak, a Thracian fox skin cap, boots, and carrying
1: a spear. Bendis might have also had leggings depending on the tribe that she's depicted with because a lot of times Thracian women wore leggings, so she might have been wearing leggings.
0: Might have been wearing leggings under the chiton.
1: Yeah, especially if it was cold. Like, it got cold up there in Thrace in those mountains.
0: It gets a little drafty with just the chiton and nothing else. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Whereas Artemis was a huntress with a bow and arrows, Bendis carried the more traditional weapon of Thrace, a spear. Because Bendis is not Artemis, you guys. Bendis is Bendis. She is
1: not Artemis. She's Bendis.
0: Thank you. Bendis is also said to have carried two lances because she had two duties, one to heaven, i.e. being the god of the moon, and one to earth, i.e. being the goddess of the hunt. So her hands were really full.
1: And the thing about Bendis that we know she's Bendis and not Artemis is we actually see her in a lot of the attic pottery. We see a lot of Thracians in this pottery, and when you see Bendis in this pottery, she has her spear, she has her little fox cap, she's got her mantle, sometimes she's wearing leggings, sometimes just a short Teton. But we know who she is and that she's not Artemis because she's a martial female with a spear. And she was such a cultural icon across both Thrace and Greece that she's appearing in the attic and in other Greek pottery. So I want to get back to her jobs. So also like the moon, Bendis glowed. She reflected the sun's light, but she also generated her own light. And this duality of Bendis's nature was important to the Thracians. I couldn't find if Bendis was also a virgin goddess, but I suspect she wasn't. Mostly because Thracians didn't see, like, virginity amongst unmarried women as being, like, something that was necessary or, like, a prize. It didn't have
0: the same social currency as it did in Greece and Rome. Exactly.
1: So I don't really think that her virginity was even something that they would have been speculating about. I think they would have been like, Bendis is Bendis, and Bendis is going to do whatever Bendis wants to do with whoever Bendis wants to do it with. But Bendis's entourage included maenads and satyrs, and let's be honest, if anyone knows at a party, it's a maenad and a satyr. We've got three episodes about those parties.
0: Satyrs had giant, raging, undying erections that were constantly... There and maynads were enthusiastic participants in orgies. So were satyrs. Like, at least that was, you know, according to the mythology. I'm just saying,
1: if they're both in your entourage, you must be bringing something to the party that is kind of like a party.
0: That is kind of like a sex party.
1: Yeah. And also, you must be getting along with Dionysus because there's no way he's going to lend you a maynad and a satyr or several maynads and satyrs for your party unless you're busting out the wine and enjoying yourself.
0: I mean, we don't think there would be maynads or satyrs in your entourage entourage. at all if sex was not on offer.
1: (laughs) That's her story. (laughs) We're sticking to it. Right. (laughs) Anyway, Bendis became a popular goddess and not just in Thrace, but in Greece. This was most likely because Greek trade with Thrace brought them in contact with her, as well as immigration of Thracian people into Greece. And
0: also one interesting thing is that the Thracians were often used in this time period as police forces for city-states like Athens. They were for hire and states like Athens, believe it or not, at this time period did not have their own police force. So they would hire out Thracian mercenaries to literally keep the peace in their cities. Around the 5th century BC, and they brought the worship of Bendis with them.
1: Around this time, the 5th century BC, the worship of Bendis became so popular in Greece that the Oracle of Dodona proclaimed that a temple should be built for her in Athens.
0: So the Oracle of Dodona... Was the second most famous of all Greek oracles. Located in Epirus, which is the place of high mountains and salty cheese and Pyrrhus of Epirus, elephant adventurers and uni tooths and sacred
1: toes. Spleen healthcare for everyone. Everyone gets it, but only for the spleen.
0: Only for the spleen. <laughs> um, <laughs> If you want to learn more about that, listen to the War Elephants episodes, you guys are going to love it. So anyway, located in Epirus in northern Greece, the oracle was situated in a sacred grove. It actually wasn't just situated in a sacred grove, the oracle was the sacred grove.
1: The temple and priests and priestesses were inside the grove, the entire grove was sacred.
0: Right, and although the priests and priestesses lived there, the oracle here was actually the sacred grove of trees itself. There were priests and priestesses that lived in the sacred grove, and they would interpret the rustling sounds of the beech and oak leaves to discern the oracle's message Some sources believe they also listened to bronze wind chimes hung in the branches. The Oracle of Dodona is featured throughout Greek mythology. Famously, the Argo was said to be lucky because it had a board made from the wood of the Oracle of Dodona. And we're betting that that was the beam that finally crushed Jason in the end because Jason was kind of the worst. And obviously that is what happened. And we're sticking to it.
1: We are. I mean, he's not as bad as Theseus, but he's still kind of the worst. The bar on that is low. So back to our story. Bendis made her way into Greek culture, but try as they might, the Greeks couldn't quite assimilate this wild goddess into their existing celebrations. Thracian immigrants, many of whom had become the mercenary police force in Athens around this time, wanted to keep their goddess separate and worshipped her in their own rites refusing to combine her with festivals to Artemis or Persephone. The Greeks wound up having to give Bendis her own festival. She got her day on the festival calendar. Yes, please, and thank you.
0: This is how it went, Jen. The Greeks were like, so can we just, like, worship Bendis at the same
1: time as Artemis? Bendis is Bendis. She will be worshipped on her own day with her own rites. Fight me.
0: I don't want to fight you, but can we just, like, roll Bendis up with Persephone?
1: Bendis is Bendis, and she gets her own festival, or you can fight all of us.
0: What about Selene's goddess of
1: the moon? Is
0: kind of the same.
1: Excuse me. Bendis is Bendis, or your police go back to Thrace.
0: God, you guys are such a pain in the ass. Fine. Bendis is Bendis. Fine. Bendis is Bendis! Bendis oh! is Bendis! Woohoo! Midnight orgy. Bendis is Bendis! Rawr! <laughs> <Wrong. laughs> This is the best episode we've ever done. Bendis is Bendis, bitches. We're so punchy.
1: I feel very strongly about that now. So by Plato's time, and we're talking about Plato lived longer than this, but the period in time we're talking about is between 429 and 413 BC, celebrations to Bendis had become a phenomenal cultural event that the Greeks actually look forward to witnessing. And this is a quote from Plato describing the festival of Bendis. Quote, And this is pretty cool because it's
0: like a first-person account of what this festival would have been like.
1: And also what it was like to be in the city when it was happening and sort of the excitement for it. And that's why I wanted to include it. So, quote, I went down yesterday to pay my devotions to the goddess Bendis and also because I wished to see how they would conduct the festival since this was its inauguration. I thought the procession of the citizens very fine, but it was no better than the show made by the marching of the Thracian contingent, i.e. the mercenary force who policed ancient Athens.
0: This is the reason that there was a Bendis festival in Athens, because of this
1: mercenary force. Who we just convinced the ancient Athenians earlier. We were like, Bendis is Bendis, give us a celebration. Hashtag midnight orgies. Look, the Thracians are very burly and the Athenians are not. So the Thracians are like, we're going to do what we want. They're like, we're the war elephants and you're everyone else. So... That's right. If we
0: say Bendis is Bendis, you have to listen to us.
1: So it's pretty much me yelling at Jenny for a half an hour that Bendis is Bendis as I continue drinking and get drunker. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. (laughs) We know that Bendis is Bendis. And if you don't believe Bendis is Bendis, this is not the podcast for you. Jog on.
0: That's right. We have no use for you.
1: So, quote, after we had said our prayers and seen the spectacle we were starting for town. Do you mean to say, interposed Adamantus, this is Plato's buddy, who is just hanging out with, that you haven't heard that there is to be a torchlight race this evening on horseback in honor of the goddess? On horseback, said I? This is a new idea. Will they carry torches and pass them along to one another as they race with the horses, or how do you mean? That is the way of it, said Paul Marcos, another buddy. And besides, there is to be a night festival, which will be worth seeing. Because he knew about the orgy.
0: He's like, we just want to (laughs) watch. So, Jen, can we just stop and picture this for a second? Oh, I'm already picturing too much. (laughs) She's picturing too much. Just focus on the torchlight race on horseback. Can you imagine the wild and ferocious beauty of it? Women and men racing on horseback, passing torches to each other as they race through the streets of Athens, all to celebrate the goddess Bendis, The goddess of light in the darkness. This would have been something just absolutely unforgettable to behold. Just as an aside, we don't actually know whether men, women, or both participated in the race, but we're assuming that women played a part, both because of the independence of Thracian women in general, especially unmarried ones, and the fact that Bendis was a goddess. She probably had priestesses, we don't know, we're just guessing. According to some sources, after this wild race, there were Bacchic rituals.
1: Bacchic like rituals, not Bacchic rituals.
0: Rituals that resembled the Bacchic rituals in that they were orgies. The sources aren't, don't say this outright.
1: Listen, don't invite main ads and satyrs into your entourage if you don't want them to come. Literally. <laughs> no no, Herodotus Bendis was Bendis she wasn't the Thracian version of Artemis or Persephone or Selene or Hecate she was so much more and she was different and I love Persephone
0: fine but Bendis is not Persephone
1: no Persephone had her own things
0: she had her own things Bendis is Bendis I just feel like we have to pound that into the ground
1: So, in addition to worshipping these gods, the Thracians worshipped sacred forests, springs, and streams, and believed in nymphs, muses, satyrs, and demons. The Thracians also believed in the sacred tree of life. This tree was divided into three parts. The top, or branches, symbolized heaven, the trunk symbolized the earth, and the root, the underworld. And of course, Jenny, the first thing this reminded me of was the world tree in Norse mythology.
0: Yeah, and you know what? That really makes me think that there is a connection to the Gothic here. You the world tree is part of the Norse Viking mythology. But first off, the Thracians predate the Vikings by a lot, and the 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 Goths were the precursors to the Vikings. So what this tells me is that you'd the world tree or a form of it must have been existent in Gothic religion and culture before the Vikings had that and it must have bled over into Thracian culture or it was, you know, part of that cultural exchange. So that's really fascinating. Or the other way around. Yeah, I mean, the crossover is just absolutely phenomenal here. And
1: the belief in sacred forests and groves brought me right back to the Gallic tribes we discussed in season three, who also worshipped in sacred groves. So if you want to find out more about those Gallic tribes, go back listen to the Gauls, everything belongs to the brave. So the Thracians often group the worship of their gods into triads, echoing the threefold nature of the sacred tree of life.
0: And again, that's something we see in Celtic mythology, like the threefold goddess. It's also something we see in Greek and Roman mythology, like the number three repeats in a lot of religious
1: contexts. Well, we see it in the Elysian Mysteries when they add in Dionysus So you've got Persephone, Demeter, and Dionysus as the cycle of rebirth and death and life.
0: Yeah, and you see this sort of um, virgin-mother-crone triad that I think appears in Celtic worship, but also kind of appears in different contexts and different ancient cultures. There's a triad element to religious worship that repeats in a lot of ways. And then, you know, that goes all the way up to Christianity as well.
1: Yeah, the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. So... This sort of worshipping in triads was meant to symbolize the balance between all things.
0: So the Thracians also believed in magic and music therapy. Even though they were historically known for being a very warlike culture, two of the most famous Thracian characters in mythology were musicians, Orpheus and Lynn. So the Thracians believed in the healing and hypnotic power of music, and they used it in their rituals.
1: Thracians also used fire dancing, and fire games in their solar rituals. The solar cult and worship of solar deities was ritualized and formal. Worship took place in temples in the mountains and was bound by strict laws and rules. The lunar cults, by contrast, were wild and untamed and usually ended in an orgy. These orgies and these lunar cults were mostly celebrated in valleys and forests. They were more at one with nature and less about being in a temple and being formalized and ritualized. They were more about getting back to nature and getting back to the wild and the freeness.
0: Free of the freeness. <laughs> Free of the freeness. Bendis is Bendis. They all
1: know I've been drinking wine, why are we going to hide it now? And
0: finally, the Thracians had their own fertility goddess called the Mother Goddess. She was the protector of plants, nature, animals, people, and homes. She had a soft spot for virgins and mothers. She was a very mild and domesticated goddess for a people who found their worth and value in plunder and war. But she shows the exceptional contradiction of the Thracian peoples and how very different the tribes were. While some of the Thracians made their living at war, others were famous for their animal husbandry, particularly raising and domesticating horses. These were horse lords. These diverse people are vividly revealed in the duality of their gods.
1: Yeah, they were horse lords. They were also like goldsmiths and silversmiths and artisans. But in order to have the freedom to be a goldsmith or a silversmith or an artisan, you had to have warriors to protect you. Because if your land is so in demand and has so many people trying to encroach on all your resources, you gotta have some burly people who are ready to fight for it. And ready
0: to protect you so that you have the freedom to do your craft.
1: Exactly. So that's the Thracians. They weren't just the rowdy neighbors of ancient Greeks and Romans. They didn't believe in the same gods as the Romans with just a few minor changes. No, they were a diverse people with their own beliefs and their own gods. Gods who the Greeks and Romans didn't fully understand. Gods who shaped the fabric of the Thracian tribes. These gods and this mythology helped shape a culture that was set to come into conflict with their Roman neighbors. They gave us an understanding of what the Thracians believed, what their worldview was, and what they held stock in. And in our next episode, we're going to tell you how the Thracians lived. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for the next installment in this series. And in the meantime, come find us on social at Ancient Histfan, on Twitter at Ancient History Fangirl, on Facebook and Instagram.
0: And check out our Patreon. We've got exclusive extra episodes for Patreon subscribers that deal with stories we didn't get to cover in our longer episodes. The side quests, if you will. You can join for just $2 a month. Yeah, and I just want to
1: say a massive thank you to everyone who has supported us and stayed with us on Patreon, to all the new subscribers. I went through a really big life change just around the time coronavirus hit. I'm currently freelance and it's been really scary and it's been really difficult my first year out on my own doing something new. And knowing that we've got the support of our patrons has helped us to pay our bills. It's helped us to really get by. We were starting to get some advertisers and lost them because of the virus. And we were over the moon to see that so many of you have just been supporting us and helping us to keep doing this podcast. And I can't tell you how much it means to us.
0: It means the absolute world to us. We know that times are not easy for anyone right now financially. And we are recording this at the beginning of April, but it's going to go up a lot later than that, possibly end of May, possibly sometime around June. And I know that right now I'm a freelance writer. My business is definitely and you know contracting because of the coronavirus and I know Jen just went through a massive life change where her situation is different than it was and we were really surprised and Really honored that so many of our Patreon listeners have stayed with us in this time to support the podcast and keep us going. And it's made a difference for us financially. It's something we now depend on. And we just feel so thankful to all of you for sticking with us like this. Thank you so much. You guys are keeping us going.
1: So, Jenny, we have some new Patreon members to thank. And we're sorry, some of you might have signed up in February or March and you're just hearing this now. It's because we record everything so far in advance.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much to Brandon Moore. Nicholas S. Mayhew. N. Ati. Phil
1: N. LeBlanc. Amy Johnston. Laura Okazaki. Ginger Amon. Catherine Clare. And also, I want to shout out to her dad, Christian Clare. Thank you both for listening to us and for supporting us. Hazel Atkinson. Ashley Scott. Samantha. Just Samantha. I didn't see a surname, so thank you, Samantha. Frank Latuka. Becca
0: Russ Bosert. Jessica Markey and Jill R. Cavallo. And thank you so much to our $2 subscribers too. Your support means the world to us.
1: And we appreciate everyone. And if you can't support us financially, we get that. It's been a very hard time for everyone. We appreciate all your kind words on social and when you rate and review us. So
0: if you haven't signed up for our Patreon, Yeah, check it out. We've got extra episodes
1: for Patreon subscribers that deal with stories we didn't get to tell. If you're not into Patreon, if you still want to donate somehow, you can check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can kick in a few bucks through our Ko-Fi account. It's just a one-time basis. You can also find a link to our amazing merch. We'll have new designs up which would be great.
0: And if you're not able to help support us financially and we totally understand, feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, which really makes a difference to us.
1: It keeps the morale going. It also like plays with those algorithms and busts us up the chart.
0: Yeah, or just share the news about our show to your friends, family, or anyone else in the history nerd herd who you know loves epic tales about the ancient world. Thank
1: you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. And we
0: will see you Two weeks. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.